Next on ReachMD, Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice in the front lines of healthcare. Now here is the host of Voices from American Medicine, Gary Epstein. From a small family practice in the rural Mississippi Delta to the president of the American Medical Association, Dr. J. Edward Hill has participated in the worlds of both practice and policymaking. I had the good fortune to meet and work with Dr. Hill when I was at the AMA, and I'm so pleased that he accepted my invitation today to spend some time with us on our new show, Voices from American Medicine. Dr. Hill, welcome, and it's great to speak to you today. Thank you, Gary. It's great to speak to you also. It's been a while. Yes, it has. It has. And I know you have continued all of your good work across the country and, in fact, across the world. And one of the things I wanted to just get an update on is the work that you're doing as chair of Council of the World Medical Association. And tell us a little bit about that and the work that the WMA is doing. Well, uh, certainly. Well, what most people don't understand and realize is that the World Medical Association is not the World Health Organization. <laughs> it gets confused often with the World Health Organization. But the World Medical Association is essentially the AMA of 97 countries. It's an all-physician organization. We are essentially the ethical watchdogs of physicians throughout the world. A little history is important. It started after World War II because there were no ethical standards uh, internationally at all at that time, particularly for research on humans and other ethical issues, and that's why the World Medical Association was established. We happen to be the owner of the Declaration of Helsinki, the principles by which all human research should be done throughout the world, and are often called on to respond to ethical issues relative to research. One question for our listeners, as you may know, we offer continuing medical education on the channel as well, and I'd be curious, do you guys at the WMA get involved in any CME or continuing education criteria around the world, or is it just sort of standards on research? Or Well, we're involved with educational programs. Most of them are online. Now, like mm-hmm. Ethics of Prison Physicians, for instance, uh, is one of our programs. We have a program on multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, which is a problem throughout a lot of the world, teaching physicians and keeping them up to date on issues like TB. So we do have educational programs also. We're very involved with safety and quality issues internationally for physicians, and we have conferences frequently relative to those issues. So it's no more than just ethics. It's education of physicians, the programs for even some of the clinical issues throughout the world. And we're continuing to grow, which is a good sign. How does somebody join? Do they join through their local society, or can they join directly? They can join directly as an associate member on our website, wma.org, or they can join through their international medical association, like the American Medical Association, or they can join through their state or local medical association. And the dues are very reasonable. For that, they receive all the communications and the online educational opportunities through WMA and also a journal. We have a journal that is produced six times a year that has a lot of international issues, particularly policy issues. The things we've been working on lately have been the issues of violence and abuse perpetrated against physicians and other healthcare workers in some parts of the world right now. And we work through the state departments. We have no authority, but we have the advantage of being able to draw awareness to these issues that may go on in the world. 
You know, I know so well, and uh, probably a number of physicians around the U.S. know that you are one of the top dogs at the AMA, but what perhaps some folks don't know about you is the work that you've done really from the very beginning in Tupelo. And I'd love you to tell our listeners a little bit about the practice that you started in Tupelo, Mississippi, and that as we were talking before this interview, you're continuing to deliver care in this part of the country that is in such desperate need. Well, actually, my good work, I consider my good work and what sort of made my career was not in Tupelo. It was in the Mississippi Delta, which is the impoverished part of Mississippi along the Mississippi River. In fact, when I started work there in the late 60s, it was as close to third world America as you could find anywhere. The concern we had was particularly around maternal child health care because of very high infant mortality rates, very high sexually transmitted illness problems. And we were fortunate enough to be able to start a maternal child health program there. And we did utilize uh, board-certified master degrees, certified nurse midwives in a in a clinic situation with two family physicians who also did obstetrics. We set up this program that ran for around 14 years, and we were able to reduce the fetal mortality from, which was one of the highest in the nation at that time, to below the national average over a three- to five-year period of time, and we're very proud of that. And it's sort of what, again, what sort of made my career. And uh, I had no designs on becoming involved in organized medicine, particularly it just happened. And I think it happened, I was blessed that it happened. But our work in the Delta dealt mainly with not just maternal child health, but children's issues that I continue to be extremely interested in and very concerned about as it relates to our social determinants of health in the country and behavioral issues that are preventable that we're not addressing in a primary prevention fashion. So that's the kind of work I'm more involved in right now in Tupelo, which is the northeast part of Mississippi. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Gary Epstein, and joining me today is family practice physician and former president of the American Medical Association and the current chair of the World Medical Association, Dr. J. Edward Hill. Dr. Hill, you were just talking to us a little bit about the maternal child health program that you are working so hard on. Tell us a little bit more about that program and about how either others can get involved with you there or across the country it would be really helpful to our listeners. My passion right now has to do with, with what I call real primary prevention. And what I mean by that is the premise is that knowledge alone seldom changes behavior. Smart people do very dumb things like smoke and not wear seat belts and so forth. But habit does change behavior. And good as well as bad habits are developed or get their base at a very early age, actually before a child is 10 years old. Now, we spend in this country around $1.2 trillion on eight behaviors, all of which are preventable. That's alcohol and drugs and accidents and injuries and violence and abuse and tobacco and obesity and sexually transmitted diseases, teen pregnancies and suicide. Now, if you think about how much money we spend in the entire health care bill every year, it's, what, $2.7 trillion? Think, $1.2 trillion is on eight behaviors, all of which are preventable, and we don't have any comprehensive, universal, coordinated, sequential school health education programs mandated and funded in this country. We have some bright spots, but 
I think every school in this country ought to have coordinated school health pre-K through 12 to address those social issues that drive such an enormous amount of cost, not to mention the lost lives and injured lives and families. So I think that we could see a dramatic reduction in the costs of care by addressing those behaviors very, very early. So that's why I've been a promoter of coordinated school health now for many, many years, and we're actually getting some real good results in the state of Mississippi, which has the worst health indices in the country for almost everything. And would you say it's a matter of reallocating or better utilizing resources that may be there now, or is it really trying to find new financial resources? Obviously, these kinds of health education programs, probably the first things that get cut out of inner city schools when they're running into financial times that are rough. But I'd be interested to understand the economics around it and how some of this kind of education could be implemented in well, to give you some examples of things that have happening just in Mississippi the last three years since we passed some legislation requiring school health programs, we're seeing children who participate in a physical activity program on a regular basis, their absenteeism rates dropping and their math and reading scores going up. And it's indisputable now. We've surveyed it now for three years, and for three years in a row we've seen that result. Now, to give you an economic aspect, if a child is not reading at the third grade level by the third grade, the chances of them being a dropout is very, very high. And if you look at prison populations across every state, you'll notice the majority of those that are in long-term incarcerated situations were school dropouts at an enormous cost to society and a very minimal cost if the money had been put up front to have a coordinated, comprehensive, and sequential school health education that would include the psychological resources that are needed and can be brought to bear on our school systems. And I hear the complaints all the time about the schools have too much on them already, and they certainly have a lot. My question to that is what we're not doing that's most important. So I think that we have to relook at what, again, I call primary, real primary prevention in our health care system. Bright spots are out there. Are you involved at all with Michelle Obama's initiative on obesity? I imagine that is connected to the kind of education that you're talking about, at least as one of those issues that go unaddressed. We're not directly connected with that, but we all have the same goal, and I think we're all going the same direction. And we need a spokesperson at that level of that caliber to really help drive this need for not just children's health, but it translates into their academic performance, into their athletic performance, into their success in life. And I think that's why Mrs. Obama's enthusiasm has been terribly welcomed and should be welcomed even more throughout the country. And yes, it's a matter of funding and resources. When you think of those figures I quoted, $1.2 trillion on preventable behaviors, you begin to see that maybe this is something that needs to be addressed much earlier than some other things. How do you feel about where this current, I guess they call it Obamacare, bill is that on the right path to addressing it or a long way to go? (laughs) Well, now you're asking my personal opinion, which I don't mind giving. (laughs) We cannot keep going down the road we've been going. That would continue to be extremely foolish. I think that this bill demonstrated the fact that we can do something. Now, it's not all the right thing, in my opinion, but we're doing something. We're having the national debate we've never had before. And I think that in the long run, because of the initiative, even though I think there will be alterations continually for some time, I think it's absolutely the right direction to go.
we have to do something. Medicare is not sustainable. Medicaid is breaking the bank of every state. And, of course, our Congress, and I don't mean to be too critical, but they've known this about Medicare being unsustainable now for at least 12 or 15 years, and it's not been addressed or uh, even approached. We have to make some enormous changes, and uh, I think this bill will help make those changes, and hopefully things that I consider not quite as good as they should be can be altered. But the point is everybody needs some kind of coverage. I think that's an important voice and an important voice for physicians to hear. As you know, we have almost a half a million physician listeners across the country on a regular basis, and it's great to gain your perspective given your worldview. I would ask you one last question with regard, I guess specifically, to the prevention initiative with regard to children and, and even in the kind of impoverished areas that you've been doing so much good work, and that is, what can other physicians around the country do to help, either to help you or to start to think about these kinds of programs in their area? Is, is there anything you would suggest they do if they want to get involved the way you are? Well, I would suggest, number one, they become involved. I think the problem is many of us don't become near as involved as we should. We're very busy. I know that and I understand that, but I also think we have a social and if not moral obligation, to become much more involved in not just local issues but the state and the national issues. And physicians tend to not to be as involved, in my opinion, as they should, demonstrated by the fact they don't support organized medicine at any level as well as they should. Being a physician, I can say what I want to about physicians, I guess. But if they would become more involved, I think, number one, we'd see significant improvements in systems, whether it's local or national, and if they became more involved, I think the personal satisfaction they would get out of seeing what influence they can have, which is tremendous and unappreciated by most of we physicians, that personal satisfaction would be more important than, than anything else in their lives, including their income. So I just encourage them to become involved. If, become involved with your local school board, if nothing else, because, again, that's where it all starts with children. And, of course, the, our future is those children. So I would encourage involvement. That's great. Thank you for sharing your voice with us. I really do want to thank my guest, Dr. J. Edward Hill, current chair of the Council for the World Medical Association and a family physician from Tupelo, Mississippi, and the former president of the AMA, as well as uh, the Mississippi State Medical Association, who nominated Dr. Hill to appear on this program. Dr. Hill, thank you so much. It's so great to reconnect and talk to you, and I look forward to talking and sharing your voice with the rest of our physician listeners. Thanks. Thank you, Gary. It's great to speak to you also. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice on the front lines of healthcare. Voices from American Medicine is hosted by Gary Epstein.